Welcome to College Guidance Now. College and career planning can be exciting, but also intimidating. At College Guidance Network, we try to inform students, reduce parent stress, and support counselors with timely, trusted advice on all aspects of the process. Your host for these discussions is Brennan Barner. Brennan is the Director of College Counseling at Khan Lab School and an advisor to Harvard's Making Caring Common Project. Each episode features a live conversation between Brennan and guest admission leaders, financial aid experts, counselors, authors, and other respected voices in the world of post-secondary planning. We hope you enjoy listening in. Welcome to College Kickoff from the College Guidance Network. I am Brennan Barnard. I'm your host, and um, so glad you could join us here tonight. As um, we get started, uh, I want to think back to the episode we had in January that many of you joined us for, and that was with Angela Duckworth and Sal Khan. And we talked about kind of the, the overall philosophy and approach to applying to college and about self-discovery and self-care um, which are obviously very two important aspects of your college journey. And tonight we are going to get into the brass tacks. We are going to get on get onto the mechanics and action items. And here to do that with us, we have a wonderful panel. And um, I want to welcome Karen Richardson, the Dean of Admission at Princeton University. Hi, hi Karen. Um, <laughs> um, Mary Nutrioni, Director of Financial Aid at Notre Dame. Fame, and Andy Borst, Director of Undergraduate Admissions at the University of Illinois. Thank you all for being with us. And we are, I see people are already uh, putting questions in the Q&A, which is great. And uh, we're going to take all your questions there tonight. We're also going to use the chat. So um, go in there now and um, share, you know, where you're coming from. If you're a parent, a counselor, a student, um, you know, what state, what school, um, just so we can see. Uh, where you're coming from. That'd be great. Um, so let's get right into it. Um, Karen, I, I want to start with you. And, and um, this is a question a lot of juniors had as they kind of uh, consider the next few months. Um, and, you know, applying to college is about telling your story, right? And um, what are some things that students can do right now, both in and out of class, um, to kind of build that story? and ultimately stand out in mission. Sure, so first of all, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Um, so I would start out by saying as an admission officer, it's, it's really my job and my goal to get to know you through your application. And I do that in a number of ways, um, through your essays, as you tell us a, a little bit about your story, uh, through the activities that you choose to spend your time doing, whether that's in or out of school, whether it's uh, a job that you have, or whether it's taking care of a grandparent or a younger sibling. Um, I learn about you through your recommendation letters and the people who you ask to write uh, to tell us more about who, who you are. Um, I learn about you through interviews. Um, if you yeah, at Princeton, we have alumni who interview. There are some schools that will do interviews by uh, the admission office. I think the challenge is that sometimes um, students think that there is a particular storyline that we're looking for. Mm -hmm. I think there's this 
this myth out there that um, we're looking for students who have, you know, those perfect grades and are leaders in everything, and they write for the school paper and they play a sport and a musical instrument and on and on and on. Um, I think there's this idea that we're always looking for that quote unquote well-rounded student. And personally, mm -hmm. I think that that is a phrase that is used too often. Um, my best advice, that was the question, so I'm going to get to that. My best advice, um, I'll break it down between academics and sort of outside of the classroom. I think my, my first thing when it comes to academics, you want to do your best in the classroom. So our job as admission officers is to try and predict how students will do on our college campus. And we never want to set up someone up for not doing well. We want to see um, students challenged because that's part of the college experience. Um, but we want to see how you've done in high school. So ensuring that you are doing your best in the classroom. Um, also challenge yourself academically, stretch yourself when it comes to taking classes that might be a little bit out of your comfort zone, maybe in the type of class it is or in the level of class it is, an honors class, an AP class, but try to find that balance between um, challenging yourself and overwhelming yourself. Colleges don't expect that you have taken every AP course that is available to you. If there are 30 that are in your, in your high school, you want to make sure that you're balancing that out. Um, I would also say keep your foot on the gas in 12th grade. So mm -hmm. ensure that you are continuing to challenge yourself um, in those classes and continuing to get those good grades through the end of the year. Outside of the classroom, when it comes to um, you know your activities, I would say do the things that interest you. Um, don't just do things because you think that they might look good on your college application. It's okay to explore a lot of different things, but try and go a little bit deeper into something that really interests you and engage in, in those activities. Don't just check them off on, on, the, uh, on a checklist. Engage in them. Really think about what you're learning from those activities. And these are the pieces that are going to help you tell an authentic story. Um, and are going to help you to write those essays that are going to tell us more about who you are and really make us want to think about you and who you will be on our college campuses. I think that's I'll great. stop there. Yeah, no, that's great. Thank you. Um, mm -hmm. And we'll dig into some more of that later. But um, but that idea of uh, kind of stand out, but don't stress out or burn out, I think is really important. Um, so, Mary, I want to turn to you. Um, I don't have to tell you as a director of financial aid that college looms large on the minds of many families and um, affording it is uh, a huge piece of that. And um, just curious about what steps you recommend as, as juniors and their families and those support them start this college search. What, what through a financial lens, what should they be thinking about? Sure, thank you, Brennan. Uh, it, first I'd say, take a big deep breath. It's gonna be okay. Um, then I would tell you, explore your possibilities. Make sure that you include schools on your list that vary in cost and don't make assumptions about affordability. Financial aid is really there to bridge the difference between the cost and what your family financial resources are. If you don't truly explore the options in, that you have, you're never going to know the real answer. So following Karen, if you don't ever apply for admission, you're not going to know if you were admitted. If you don't apply for financial aid, 
you're not going to know if you would have received the amount you needed. I'd also say learn the language of financial aid so that you know the basics and then build on that knowledge. Words and phrases are used in financial aid that seem sometimes like a different language, right? So things like the cost of attendance or family contribution, financial need, net price, and more are used frequently. Those of us in the profession, they just kind of roll off our tongue and we forget that many families don't know the language of financial aid and financing. I think if you understand those basic words in the language now, you'll be able to ask the right questions as you continue your search and especially making things like campus visits. There's numerous myths about financial aid as well. Don't believe them. Statements like only the best students get a scholarship or my parents make too much money to qualify for financial aid or the process of applying for financial aid is just too complicated. Those aren't true. And the other thing is, is there's many people there to help you along the process. Ask questions of your school counselor, use websites like Big Future through the college board, talk with financial aid and admissions counselors, and attend programs like this that you're attending tonight to get real answers from those who have right information and not listen just to web chats of other families. Financial aid is categorized into basically merit aid and need-based aid, and you can get both. They're not, they don't have to be one or the other. It's offered as gift aid, which sometimes you'll hear as scholarship or grant, and then self-help, loan or works. And there are four basic sources of financial aid, and that would be the federal government, your state that you live in, colleges and universities, and other private organizations. You have to apply for financial aid, especially need-based financial aid, in the fall of your senior year in high school. All, all schools are going to use the free application for federal student aid, and the FAFSA is the source for all the sources I just mentioned a moment ago. Some schools also use their own aid application and or they use the CSS financial aid profile. Find out what each school needs, what are their application dates for financial aid, how does that align with the admissions program that you might be looking at at each school. Unlike college admissions, you have to apply for financial aid every year. So just sharing that up in advance so you, you realize on an annual basis to renew, you probably are going to have to apply. And then as you think about attending college, realize first that college is an investment. I'm not going to go deep into it. Sounds like there's some great people who are going to be talking in the future about that. But really, it is an investment because the student is investing in themselves. And as we know from data, education pays. Median earnings increase with education. A college degree is also associated with healthier lifestyles and more active and engaged citizens. Planning is key as you think about this investment. And again, like I said, take a big deep breath. Explore your options, ask questions, and ultimately find the best fit academically, financially, and socially.
That's great. Thank you. That's great. And, and I mean, your office puts out some great uh, resources and uh, webinars and things like that for students and counselors mm-hmm. um, and, and many, and many schools do. And so going straight to the source, I think is often the, the best way to do it. And like you said, there's some great financial aid counselors um, there to help. Yes. Uh, so thank you. So, okay, Andy, um, you're going to back clean up here and then we're going to go right I'm to good. the questions from the chat. Um, there, I don't have to tell you, but there, there are thousands of schools in the country, right? And um, they're all different shapes and sizes, big schools, small schools, rural, urban. You know, as juniors start to make sense of this all and all the options, what are some good tips on researching and starting to get to know the, the kind of intricacies of, of different schools and programs? Sure. So I have uh, two tips for you. One is to give you a college search resource, and two is to make you aware of how the nature in which you might be doing your college search may be different than either an older sibling or uh, parents or somebody that you know. The world that we're working Mm -hmm. with with uh, recruiting students is changing. So for the first tip, in the U.S., there's over 5,000 colleges and universities, which is why starting the college search can feel so overwhelming. The forest can feel so big that you don't even know which type of tree to look at first. My hope is to give you a free resource to begin thinking about characteristics of the college or factors of the college, which may be a good fit for the student. And I think the best tool that I've found to start the college search is the U.S. Department of Ed's college scorecard, which I hope that a a link can be shared in the chat here. The college scorecard not only helps by providing a comprehensive list of colleges, which you could probably find just with a simple Google search, but why I think this particular search is is important um, is that it has a lot of data about student outcomes, but it also can help you to think about the factors that are important to the the student's college choice. Most students will base their college decisions on a combination of three factors. Program, the type of major that they're interested in. Place, the type of environment, the campus feel, or the price. What is the uh, cost or uh, net that that Mary talked about? Uh, The college scorecard can help identify colleges that are near you in a particular state or um, maybe across country in an area that you want to look at. You can identify colleges based on a setting of urban, suburban, college towns, rural, there's different sliders that you can play with. You can filter by religious affiliation, say if you only wanted to look at colleges that had Catholic affiliation. With the college scorecard, you can see the average graduation debt, um, excuse me, graduation rate, the average annual net cost after aid, median earnings after for the graduates. Uh, but I, I want to give you a word of caution here, but at this point in the search, you're not trying to pick a few schools to look at. You're only looking to um, identify the factors that may be important for you, or at least start having that conversation in your family about what are the factors that you that are important or that stand out. Is it public? Is it private? The size of the institution matter? Make it fit um, putting a, a group of different colleges within that mix. So then that brings me to my second tip is how the college search process is changing. So in the past, you may have taken the PSAT and uh, all of a sudden your mailbox was flooded with all of these pieces of mail from colleges that are very eager to enroll you. However, because of changes in either federal privacy or state uh, laws is that colleges no longer have the ability to necessarily license your name from College Board or other vendors unless you've opted in to receive that information. On one side, your inbox may not be as flooded, but on the other side, the idea of selling the information of minors to a third party without their permission kind of makes sense that we're trying to limit this. What that means for you or uh, for students is that they may have to reach out to to colleges and universities in a little bit more aggressive way than they have in the past 
to tell us that you're interested in receiving information because we don't have the same uh, pipelines or the pipeline information that we have may not come to us in the same way. So reach out to the colleges, tell us that you're interested in finding out more information and we will happily send you more info. That's great, thanks. Karen, I'm gonna start with you. If you could just, um, there are a number of questions coming in about um, test optional. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? I just, we'll just get that one taken care of right <laughs> off the top here um, and elaborate on the test optional world. And is it a trend? Is it temporary? How much do the SAT or ACT count towards an application? Um, some of those issues. Sure. Um, so, you know, test optional definitely in the past two years with the pandemic wreaking havoc on uh, a lot of things in everyone's life, lives. Um, a number of schools, including Princeton, uh, were test optional uh, during the pandemic. Uh, mostly a, a lot of schools went test optional because it was obviously very difficult for students to be able to access uh, the SAT or the ACT. Um, I think every school is going to have to make a decision uh, over the next year, and many already have um, put out um, announcements about what their plans are for the next year or the next several years. Um, a number of schools, including Princeton, are still sort of evaluating what um, what test optional means and how it has affected our first year classes and the students that we're bringing in. I think the important thing to remember, obviously, any school that you're thinking about applying to, you need to uh, determine what their testing requirements are. But I think the important thing is if a school says that they are test optional, believe them. Um, you know, if a student is has decided not to submit testing, um, that school that is test optional will evaluate that application without testing in, in the fashion that they would evaluate every other application. It's not being held against students. Um, we're not trying to trick anyone into, you know, not sending testing, but it has to be up to the individual applicant. Um, I think that's the other important piece. If a school is test optional, um, it's not up to the college for a student if they have taken testing to help that student determine whether or not they're going to submit it. It has to be that student's, that student's decision in working with their, with their school counselor or their college counselor. So I hope I, hope I answered that question for you. Yes, that's great. I'm, I'm sure there are lots of related questions, but um, yes. sorry, we can come back. Um, Mary, I want to turn to you. The, there was a question um, about uh, having need, having financial need, and whether or not that is going to impact uh, admission. Um, the, the person was saying that, you know, they'd heard that coming, applying to college and having financial need is going to make it harder to get into some schools. Can you talk about that just generally? Sure, I think that's a, you know, a reasonable question to ask. Um, my experience in the profession is, is those schools who are using financial need to make the admission decision have made that announcement and have made it clear that they use financial need when making their decision. Um, the mo majority of schools, I think, are need blind, meaning that they're not taking into family financial, family financial circumstances into account when they are admitting a student. I think Karen 
and Andy um, certainly know much better than I do from the financial aid world, usually those, those, that data is completely separate. And so admission offices don't have as, access to it. Um, and so I, my experience is, is no financial need is not a deterrent um, to being admitted to a particular institution. But again, I know there are schools who have announced specifically that they do use that or for a particular population, maybe a group such as international students. That's a great point. And I, I, mean, I think the really important piece is that um, families should ask directly to, to colleges and Absolutely. ask colleges, do you factor in uh, financial need when you're reading applications and when you're reviewing applications um, and, and expect to hear you know, the answers? <laughs> I agree. Um, Andy, want to turn to you. There's a question about applying to schools undeclared or, you know, undecided major. Um, and is that okay? So the reality is, is that most students will change their major once they enter college. Mm -hmm. And some particular majors have become very competitive. And so it really depends on, uh, in some ways, it's a STEM-related field, or are they open to exploring majors once they're on campus? I think that those are questions that you can ask of the admissions officer of how easy is it to change majors once you're on campus. But I would recommend that every single student I talk to, to please look at applying as an undeclared student. Uh, the advisors are set up to uh, set up pathways for you to enter into lots of different curriculums once you're on campus. Uh, it can be challenging to graduate in a timely manner if you're entering into a one particular major and then change once you're on campus. That path is easier if you're coming in as an undeclared student and you're 17 or 18 years old, or you will be when you get to the point of entering the college. And it can feel overwhelming to feel like you have to declare what you're going to do for the rest of your life, not that your major uh, sets that up, but you still feel that pressure as you're applying. And so I would encourage you to apply to most of the schools that you're looking at as undeclared. But again, there are some schools that, that once you're there, you can't switch your major into certain majors, right? Correct. So we're a good example of that. And so I would like to see more students apply as, as undeclared. However, computer science on our campus has become competitive to the point where the only entry into that program is as a new freshman or new transfer that you can't enter into that program. Now there are options for minors or related programs in data sciences or information sciences. Um, but I think that the number of those programs are so small and different across the university landscapes that it is healthier to, for you to go into the college environment thinking, being open to exploring different majors. That's great. Thanks. Um, Karen, right now there are a lot of uh, schools doing course selection. So juniors are trying to decide what they're going to take senior year. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a lot of kind of um, stress and, and angst about um, the courses they're choosing. Um, there's been a lot of news uh, about uh, calculus versus statistics recently. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Do you have any kind of general thoughts or, or maybe even some specific thoughts for students as they um, kind of build the most um, challenging and um, competitive uh, program for a senior year? 
Sure. So the first thing I would say is if you are thinking about pursuing a degree in engineering, please take calculus. Um, mm -hmm. That's going to be an important piece um, that most schools are going to look at if you um, tell them that you're interested in an engineering degree. Um, they're going to look to see that you're taking the highest level math course. Um, as I said at the beginning, though, I think it's important to ensure that you're continuing to take a rigorous course load in your 12th grade, um, in your senior year. And that's because colleges do want to see that you are continuing to challenge yourself, um, that you're keeping, like I said, keeping your foot on the gas um, through 12th grade. Um, I would say something that I look for is that students are taking some classes across the curriculum. So um, we like to see that students are taking a science course and a math course and a language arts or a, a history and a history course. Um, and if they can, a, a foreign language course also is something that as a liberal arts university, we are um, going to encourage students to take a language once they arrive on campus. So it's something that we like to see that students are, are taking in their senior year as well. But I think the most important thing is, is ensuring that you're keeping the rigor up, but as I said, you also have to find that balance of not stressing yourself out, right? So it's not about, um, you know, taking so many courses or so many high level courses that you feel like you can't keep up. Um, so it's it's really working. You have to work with your counselor to ensure that you are, are taking that good balance of courses. Right. And, and ultimately that balance is gonna look different for every student, right? Um, as a counselor, I have a lot of students coming into my office often saying, um, you know, if I take this or if I don't take this, am I going to get into these schools? And it's just not that easy, right? And it's a balancing act and it's how, how um, successful a student thinks they can be in those courses. Um, exactly, and it's all about context as well. So as, as an admission officer, I'm always, um, looking at students within context. I'm not expecting a student who goes to high school X to have the same curriculum as a student who goes to high school Y because different classes are offered. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at each student within the context of, of the school and the curriculum that's available to them. That's great. And Andy, can you just build on that a little? Because, and this comes back to your um, computer science uh, uh, comment earlier, um, there's a student that's asking um, for a student seeking to pursue computer science in college. Um, do universities consider um, AP and uh, computer science courses to be quote unquote science courses? Um, or do you see those as separate from, you know, the the other sciences? And so, you know, um, how, how, what should they be thinking about when they're applying for those programs? Sure. So I will double down on what Karen shared about the highest math rigor available. So what our computer science faculty have said is that they don't have a preference if a student has taken a computer science class in high school or not. Their preference is to prepare for calculus, whether it's offered at the school or not, as well as a rigorous curriculum in physics. Uh, so those tend to be the main areas that we're looking at. But in terms of how the computer science class counts in our curriculum, we tend to count it as a math class, but we're wanting to see if a student is taking computer science in their senior year, we're wanting to see maybe a stats or a um, calculus, or if, this, if calculus or stats isn't offered in the school, at least pre-calculus. So we're wanting to see 
the highest level math within the curriculum that's available. Great, thanks. Um, so shifting gears here a little, Mary, um, you talked a little bit about um, kind of the value of college, right? And uh, on earnings and things like that. As And we're going to talk about this in our episode next month. But um, what are some relevant ROI, return on investment questions uh, for students to ask? You know, a lot of students are going out to do campus visits this month and on uh, February breaks and things like that. What, what kind of questions should they be asking to try to get at return on investment? Sure. sure. Um, let me just think for a minute. Um, I certainly, I think getting a position, getting a job and one that's fulfilling is an important piece. And what's the placement rates? I think that's part of your return on investment. Uh, also things like graduate schools, right? Are students looking to go on for further education? I think those are important questions to be asking. I think in that same context uh, is the question of uh, student debt might be, and I often get asked, how much debt is too much? Well, it depends. It's going to depend upon the major that the student is looking at. And again, sometimes I, I think it was um, Andy who said, you know, students change majors. And so it's not always what you start out with. And so the debt question is a tough one, but I think an important one. Uh, again, I, I think there's, um, those are the things that come to mind immediately. I think there's other questions um, that I changed that tact a little bit, especially at this point in their search, might be, again, Andy mentioned the scorecard. I think there's some of the questions um, to me that are important are, what is the four-year graduation rate? Things like that. How many students are graduating on time? What is the debt that they're graduating with? Um, what has been the satisfaction? What's retention from the first to second year? So I think there's, again, different ways at different times is my experience uh, in higher education that I ask different questions or advise different things to people as they consider um, the the choices that they're making about different institutions so yeah that makes sense thank you yeah and and i think um you know some of the questions related questions can be for the career services mm -hmm. office, right so mm -hmm. how active is the career services um office how how do they support students how early do they support students and and some of those pieces so and i think brennan just very quickly to to your point earlier how the college search process has changed i think the other piece of the change is how um, students find jobs and what are things like internships that are along the way that are available or research that's available to student because it's not always employers anymore coming to a campus. So there's a lot of different searches. And so I think the questions you're offering there about what is the engagement um, from the very first year and how they help a student build that resume on and help them to learn how to go out and seek a position or move on to whatever their next step might be. That's great. Thanks. Um, Karen, I'm going to throw you a softball here. Um, how important is community service? Um, and, and, and a related question is kind of what do, um, what do colleges want to see on a kind of uh, a resume or uh, list of activities? 
Sure. So the, you know, the short answer is there's no thing that we want to see. What we want to know is what interests you, right? So um, yes, service is a part of, um, if, if service is a part of who you are, then we definitely want to know what you've done and more importantly, what you've learned from um, the service activities that you have been involved in. Again, it's not just about using it as a checklist to say, I have done this many hours of service. Um, it's about, you know, why was it important to you? And, um, you know, what have you learned from that particular experience? I think it also depends on each school that you're applying to, um, what, how service um, and how meaningful it can be. I will say, you know, at, at Princeton, we, um, our informal motto is about being in the nation's service. So one of our questions on our supplement is about, uh, is about engaging with uh, a civic engagement and how you, how, what that means to you. So. I think a lot of it depends on which schools you're thinking about applying to. But again, the bottom line is it's about being involved in the things that interest you um, and that you're really getting something out of it as well. And contributing to the common good is is a good thing to do in any case. It's a great thing to do, right? yes. <laughs> um, um, Andy, there's a question here about homeschool students um, and um, how you review and out evaluate homeschool students and um, you know what what they need to know. I mean, you I know you all have self-reported grades. Um, what what advice do you have for homeschool students and families? So we're reviewing each student in context of the opportunities that are available to them. So in the case of homeschooled students, some of them are participating in a federal uh, curriculum, others are not. And so we're looking at grades, what classes are listed on the self-reported academic record. But we're also putting more weight on other subjective factors of the essay. How are you spending your time when you're not in school? Uh, and then what is your interest in the particular major that you're applying for? And how did you make meaning from the experiences? So I would say that for homeschooled students, uh, reach out to the admissions office and ask how that particular college is looking at a homeschooled student, because it will be different uh, from institution to institution. And we can give you some examples of students that have come to our campus uh, from home schools and institutions. That's great, thanks. And and I mean, I think related well, there was a related question about um, how um, how you look at transcripts in context. You know, so if a student doesn't have APs in their their school or things like that, can you mm -hmm. can you address that? It is the most common question asked at a parent night. Do I get A's in regular classes or C's in AP classes? And for competitive admissions, no one likes hearing the answer. It's A's in the most rigorous curriculum that's available in order to have a shot at the um, most competitive institutions. In the context of what you shared earlier about what's the balance, what can the student handle? It's not about just taking the maximum amount of APs. There's actually... Um, some good research out of a couple of North Carolina and then even College Board has said that after you take six APs in your high school curriculum, the amount of success that happens in your college uh, career starts to level off. So there's really not a lot of difference between taking six APs or 12 APs. But what we're wanting to see is engaging in a curriculum that's at your high school, the opportunities that are available, whether it's an IB, AP, dual credit opportunities, so that you're challenging yourself so that when you get to us, you have the best chance for success. 
It's not about just trying to impress us. It's what's the available context that's uh, at your school. That's great. Yep. And as many schools don't have APs, and so it's it's important to think about. Um, all right, Mary, I, I want to get into the weeds here on, um, on a financial aid question, um, as it might help some other folks. Um, the question it says, um, our income was higher for the year that will be in review for financial aid. Uh, otherwise, our incomes are lower. I think this review will most likely put us over the limits where most schools will not provide financial aid. Um, what are your thoughts about this? Sure. Um, it's a great question and certainly something we're seeing a lot of right now, um, pandemic, post-pandemic, with the, um, for families who don't know, if we were looking at the 23, I'm going to say 22, 23. So if, for families right now who are applying for financial aid, they're using 2020 income. So the following year, uh, 23, 24, families would be using the 2021 income as the base of the financial aid decision. So starting from there, yes, family income changes are something that can be addressed. That's up to each individual school, how they're going to handle that. The FAFSA is going to require that you use the base year, which again would be 2021 income. Another thing I would say is try not to make an assumption about what, whether you will or you won't be eligible for assistance. Um, I'm at a, an institution and I'm not here to sell my institution. What I'm here to say is we have families who earn well into to, um, the six-figure incomes who receive need-based aid. Again, we're a higher cost institution. So uh, I think it's important to realize that there's a whole spectrum and it's important to find the facts. In terms of the declining income, that's something specifically you need to address with each school. What's your procedure? What would you need to take a look? And then what are the kinds of aid that um, might be possible for that? So again, I think sometimes families think it's only going to be grants or whatever that might be given. It may be a combination of uh, self-help and or uh, gift assistance. So look at college websites too, because often their process or procedures are listed on their specific website. What are the kinds of things you need to do to request additional assistance because your circumstances aren't reflected in that base year income? That's great, thanks. Mm -hmm. um, so Karen, it is in the twenties here in New Hampshire uh, today. Um, it is cold and my mind has gone to summer and I'm, looks like I'm not the only one. Um, yeah. I didn't know where that was going, but okay. <laughs> Long lead in there. Um, what are some summer activities? Um, what, you know, what's the best way to spend a summer for a student? Um, you know, should they, should they, um, do a program at a college? Should they do an internship? What, 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 what's the way to go? I feel like I'm a broken record, but <laughs> I think that a student and a family need to determine how they're best going to spend the summer. Um, you know, it's 
it, it, for some students, spending the summer doing a pre-college program on a college campus is the best way for them to spend that summer. For some students, it is um, having a summer job and you know working at a summer camp or working in a, a restaurant to earn money. Um, there's really no wrong answer, honestly. Um, and each student is going to have a, a different reason why they're why they're doing different things in the summertime. Um, I think it's important to realize that um, you don't have to have this packed summer, very specific experience in order to tell a school about it. I think think you again you need to be able to be authentic in your in your story um, and tell us tell us how you spent the summer or and tell us about why it was important to you but there's no one answer for every student so you're saying there's not a silver bullet to get into Princeton there is not a silver bullet yes no there is not <laughs> oh well. well and it's also 20 degrees here in New Jersey just so you know oh, okay that makes me feel better um uh, Andy, I want to um, turn this question to you, and it's about um, kind of submitting portfolios um, and performing in visual arts. Um, if a student has a deep talent and, and interest in a performing art or, or visual art, do you recommend they submit an art, port, uh, art supplement, um, even if they're not applying, you know, specifically to a performing arts program or a uh, fine arts program? Um, should they do that? Should they reach out to the particular department to get feedback? What, what, what's your what's your thoughts on that? So it will depend greatly depending on the institution. So I can only answer for the University of Illinois. Uh, but if you are applying for an arts program, there are some of our programs that do require a portfolio. So you're applying for admission to the university. And then there is an additional process where you're either doing a talent submission, uh, whether that's musical performance, and we're reviewing your talent independent of your academics. And so many times that additional talent is taken into account in the admissions decision. If you're not in that particular major for an institution that admits by major, you do not need to submit a portfolio because we are not going to consider it. Now, our faculty would love to look at that information, but it doesn't mean that it would necessarily be a factor in your admissions decision. That's really helpful, thanks. Um, okay, Mary, back to you. Another financial question. Um, and, and I think this is changing, so this would be helpful. How does having another child in college affect financial aid for a sibling? Is it true that we get more aid for a second or third child in college? So, um, Brennan, you're right. The world is changing in regards to this question. Wait there a second. Is... You, sound, you sound surprised when you say, Brennan, you're right like that. Um, well, no, I just am surprised the question's coming up, but, and you clearly know that it's, um, there's legislation that has been passed that for federal aid, so that's what I'll say, and some of this is still unfolding. So, you know, just hold on, because we really have no idea. It's been deferred to 2425. The federal formula is going to eliminate the number in college uh, factor which as you said, that uh, when they're currently, when there's more than one student in college, that what is called the family contribution is divided by the number in college. So what are schools individually gonna do with their funding, I think is a different question, but we know for federal aid and probably state grant programs, it's going that 
number and college factor will be eliminated. Some schools may continue to use an approach that looks at number in college. Again, I think it's probably a good question to ask. Um, I think there's probably a lot of schools that don't have an answer to this yet because the legislation has been um, deferred and we don't have a lot of answers. One of the tools that might be helpful as we move toward this uh, highly probable is what I'll say change, would be things like a net price calculator. It's too soon um, to get an answer from a net price calculator on this question because that isn't the only piece of the federal formula. And I could go way into the weeds, but we would lose three quarters of our viewers if I did that. That wouldn't be a good thing. But there are other pieces that are changing of the federal um, formula as well during uh, the same time. So how it all evens out will be um, an interesting question. Uh, and again, I think the other pieces, what are individual schools going to do with that uh, particular federal change? So it, stay tuned. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Karen, I want to come back to you because there's a follow-up question ab about uh, summer and, and the uh, family says, we get a lot of marketing for summer programs on Ivy League and other campuses like those schools that seem to imply that it will enhance their application. I know you're shocked um, that the marketing <laughs> could possibly do that. Um, but I've also heard that these programs are frowned on because they are expensive and signal privilege. Thoughts? Hmm. Um, so that's a, that's an interesting question. I, we don't think about them in, in that way, honestly. Um, again, we're taking a student where they are and looking at them and thinking about who the student is and what their interests are and what they might bring to our campus, not making any sort of judgments or passing any judgment on how they have decided to spend their summer. Um, so I, I would just double down on that. I think it's it has to be up to a student in the family um, how they would like to spend their their summers. And it's not, you know, we're not passing judgment and deciding that that is a, a privileged piece. And whether or not it factors into, again, summer is such a tiny piece of the overall holistic view that we're, we're taking. So um, it's not necessarily going to be the piece that just because a student has done one of these programs on one of the campuses, that that's going to be what brings them into the class. It's, it's a piece of that overall look. Thanks. Thanks. Hey, Andy, so there's um, a question here about business and engineering and mm -hmm. a student's interested in both and, um, you know, as they think about applying to college, um, is it is it um, they're still deciding? You know, what's the best way to approach that? Um, will um, undecided help at all, or um, is it going to be more difficult for them to get into one of those programs than the other? How, how would you advise? So, business and engineering tend to be some of the more selective programs, depending on the institution that we're looking at. Um, it is tends to be more difficult to move from an undeclared major into a business or engineering program. Sometimes institutions will allow you to pick two majors. So you might say that engineering is your first choice and then explain why. 
and then you'd be considered for engineering. And then in your second choice, you would have the opportunity to apply for business. So you're submitting one application, applying to multiple majors, and then being considered for multiple options. Uh, and then it's for us as the institution to read through your essays and figure out what might be the best fit based off of your academic record, based off of your interests, based off of your aspirations, to see how you would fit in with our class. And then uh, as Karen has said multiple times, sometimes that's just not an easy answer, but it starts with exploring, you're still juniors, talking, visiting these campuses, seeing what the engineering campus might look like, talking to the College of Business and see what stands out to you. And it may be different depending on the college that you're looking at. Yeah, and any any more tips on kind of how to explore? There was a student that was asking earlier um, in the chat. You know, how do there's so many schools all over the country? How do I how do I? And we talked a little bit about this, but how do I really explore what those programs offer? Any any more thoughts on that? I would say start local. Uh, so you don't need to fly across the country to check out an individual program. So we're talking about program place and price. The place might be very different, but programs might be fairly similar. So as you're looking at a different uh, major, find an institution that's within driving distance. Most students will attend a college within a three hour radius of their home um, and check out their business program, check out their engineering program or their liberal arts program and see what the faculty say, how they sell their program. That will give you a basis to compare at a different institution. Great. Thanks. Um, Karen, there was a question here about GPA and um, and do schools take, the, I mean, I, again, the, the answer is it depends. I actually even have my, um, my it depends mug, <laughs> yes. which I come from frequently um, and, and viewers have probably seen this before. Um, so um, do schools take a GPA that's given by the high school or do you run uh, the students' transcripts through your own formulas to come up with a, uh, your own GPA based on your internal um, formula? So we take what a what a um, school gives to us, um, what the high school gives to us, because again, it's about context and every high school has a slightly different way of calculating GPAs. Um, some schools will have a weighted GPA and some will have an unweighted. And I will say that um, for us, um, if a school offers both of them, we are going to look at the weighted GPAs because we just want to see how a student compares in the classes but every school is gonna do it a little bit differently. That's great, thanks. Um, Andy, the, um, the student question here about kind of how to report their identity. Um, they say, um, I'm uh, Hispanic, Native American, Black, and Asian. Um, how do I best choose um, how to identify? It's very confusing for me, they say. You can choose not to identify, or you can choose to identify all of those. Many times race, ethnicity, uh, gender identity are self-reported measures. And you can talk about how those identities affect you, uh, your world reality in your, your essays or your short answer questions. Um, but in terms of what's the right thing to put, there is not a, an answer for that. No institution is looking for a certain amount of this type of student or a certain amount of this type of student. Thanks. All right, so we are coming up on time here and um, I'm gonna come to you, I'm gonna get one more question in here and then I'm gonna uh, have you all think about the biggest myth and misconception in college admission and, and I'll come back to you. Um, but um, uh, Karen, maybe you could just talk about, um, there's a question here 
about uh, going to a local community college and then transferring and how that looks um, to, um, to, to you all. I know, I know you've done a lot around transfer, transfers in the last couple of years. Right. So um, actually um, at Princeton, we are uh, encouraging uh, students who are at community colleges to um, apply for transfer uh, programs. So um, I think that it is, uh, it is very possible and it is looked upon um, very favorably. Again, I think it's, um, you have to look at each school and see what the parameters are. Um, and how many courses you might be able to transfer from the community college where you might be able to start um, at the four-year institution. But I think it is, it's definitely something that is looked upon favorably at a lot of institutions. That's great, thanks. Um, all right, here we go. Mary, I'm gonna start with you. What is the biggest myth or misconception in college admission? College admission? Well, or financial aid. Oh, okay. Um, I could probably do both. But what I will say, because I gave some myths before, so I'll change it a little bit and say uh, that the biggest myth is that the school that has the lowest price is going to cost me the least. That's not always a true statement because the purpose of financial aid is to bridge the the gap between your resources. And so many families will find they're surprised at the level of assistance that they receive that makes um, one of the schools they thought would be least affordable, maybe the lowest um, price overall. That's great, thank you. All right, Andy, Big Smith. I would say that college admissions is fair. I think a lot of the assumptions is that the, those with the most perceived merit are the ones awarded admission to selective institutions. Institutions are looking for very different things. We're looking to build a class. For example, our institution will release admissions decisions tomorrow. And there are a lot of students that I would have preferred to admit, but we just run out of space. And so we have to look at building an entire cohort. It may be a cohort of 8,000 that may comprise different things of who might be interested in sociology versus who's interested in computer science. There are our institutions um, being admitted to Notre Dame and Princeton and Illinois are very different. And so you might uh, talk to a friend who got into one institution who was waitlisted at another. And if I have any advice for you is to not engage in those type of comparisons with your friends because it doesn't lead to good outcomes and it's not necessarily based on an objective reality. And then next you're going to tell me life isn't fair either. <laughs> we already knew that. All right. All right, Karen, bring us home here. That's tough to follow. Wow. And I'm jealous that you're releasing decisions tomorrow. Um, it might not be the biggest myth, but it is a myth that um, you will walk onto a college campus and, and just know that it's the one for you. Um, you might walk onto a campus and, and realize that, oh yeah, this, this feels like it might be a good fit, but you have to do a little bit of work and do a little bit of digging. And, you know, as Andy was saying, you figuring out if the program that you want is there. Um, but also thinking about, um, you spend probably more time outside of the classroom than you do inside of the classroom once you're in college. So also making sure that there are things that you want to do um, when you're not engaged in, in class and thinking about the type of community that you want to be in. And sometimes that means 
going beyond what the admission office is offering to you when you're visiting a college campus. Sit in the dining hall and eavesdrop on and on what students talk about and how they talk to one another. Um, so do a little bit of digging and you know figure out if this is the place for you. Well, that's a great way to, to close it out. You all have been so generous with your time, especially at a uh, very busy time of the year for you all and uh, Andy on the, the eve of releasing decisions. Um, so we are grateful for um, your, your wisdom tonight. That's it for College Guidance Now. If you like this podcast, please share it with a friend, rate it, review it. College Guidance Now is a presentation of College Guidance Network. To join conversations like this one live in the future, go to collegeguidancenetwork.com. Thanks for listening.